Good morning, family. My name is Randy Pauley. I am the pastor here. I thank you all for visiting with us, including those who have been gone at college. We've missed you. And we also have a special guest that wasn't seen. But before I get there, children, uh, for Children's Church, we have Children's Church all the way from infant to fifth grade. They will be meeting in the back foyer. You are dismissed at this time, and you can go with them. The teachers are back there, uh, and they will walk you around due to the construction. So you're more than welcome to go. If you have children, you're also more than welcome and invited to stay in with us. We love children. We love the distractions they bring, and we bear with them as he has borne with us. Uh, we also have another option for mothers with infants nursing. There's a little room over here to my right, your left. It's got some things in there for you, a rocking chair, quiet place. You can go in there as well. So uh, thank you for bearing with us in the construction. Uncle Lance, how did you know? How did you know I would apologize for the construction? Are you a prophet? No. <laughs> Uh, it's good. Uh, so thank you for bearing with us in the construction. Hopefully that'll be squared away within the week. As I said, there, there was a visitor here that's sneaking in the back, thinking he could get away. He was in surgery. He's been gone for about six weeks. Jeff, my brother in the back, he's here. Praise God. He's here, so you guys see him and love on him. Uh, he has missed you, and we have missed him. So thanks for being back. We will be in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. We've been marching through Philippians. We just started it. We'll be closing out the first chapter today. While you guys are turning there, did anybody win the billion dollars for March Madness? Anybody? Anybody? No? I think most of your brackets were out by the first day, and uh, mine never even made it in. So, next year, next year, guys. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? All right. So, we have it up here, letters from prison, because that's exactly where Paul finds himself as he writes to the Philippians. Last week we saw how Paul's ultimate desire was to honor Christ, to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. And then he made that statement that I asked that we would drop like an anchor for our joy, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I made the statement to the degree that you view your life as Christ, you will view your death as gain. And then we saw Paul say how he was convinced or he thought that he would remain and continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. Brothers and sisters, that's why I'm here. And ideally, that's why we're all here, to continue for our progress and joy in the faith. But a brief word about myself I will fail you. I will fail you as a man to live perfectly for your progress and joy in the faith. But Christ will never fail you. Christ will never cease to live perfectly for your progress and joy in the faith. So 
As much as this weak man here might fail at times to point to the magnificence of Christ, whether it be through word or action, never, never let my poor substitute replace Christ in your mind. So we see that that's his desire, that was his goal, that was his driving aim in life. And now we get to this portion, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And he's going to be giving this idea, this overarching idea for the Christian life, a command. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Or that phrase could also be translated, above all, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Above all, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Here's the idea. We all know that we can kind of tell about how people, where they're from sometimes, or, or what types of idiosyncrasies somebody might have in their culture based off certain characteristics of how they act. So, for instance, sometimes I ran across a long time ago somebody from Boston and they were very upfront about everything. They didn't sugarcoat anything, as they put it. Uh, they don't like to beat around the bush. They just go straight to it. And they said, you guys from the South, they just, you guys beat around the bush. Uh, and they prided themselves at being upfront. And so certain places, for example, from Hawaii, Perhaps when, when we go home to the mainland, our family and friends think, where's your tan? Don't you live on the beach and go to the beach every day? Or when they come and visit us, is that spam and eggs at McDonald's? Or these things we wear on your feet, can we have some sandals? No, 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 we don't have sandals, we have slippers slippers. There's characteristics that define different places from where that we live and, and we define that as we grew up in those places. For example, I grew up in the south, so I go somewhere and I want sweet tea. And nobody here has sweet tea, so God brought me Rita and Jeff from Louisiana to make sweet tea. And I'm very rejoicing over that. And that's what Paul's going to get into here as he says, Christian, as a believer, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. This isn't a new concept in Scripture. Ideally, Israel, having been given the law, having seen all these mighty deeds that God had done for his covenant people, was to live in such a way that the nations would see them and say this, Deuteronomy 4, surely, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? See, Israel was to live in a manner worthy of their calling. God set them apart and they were to be different from all the surrounding nations. We also see this concept in Jonah. You remember Jonah? Jonah, my, 
my wife was telling the story of Jonah and the ark. She got mixed up. <laughs> Good time. Jonah and the ark. Um, I knew what she was talking about. She did too. Jonah, what happened whenever God said, I want you to go to Nineveh? Well, he said, no, I don't want to go to those people. Their reputation preceded them. So we see this concept there. And oh, how that our reputation here in Maui as a gospel-centered covenant community of believers radically committed to Christ would change us. It would speak testimonies to live as Christ, to die as gain. So let's get to our passage then. Real brief, verses 27 through 30, it's up on the screen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is sufficient. You have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move on us, that you would feed your flock in spite of my many insufficiencies, that Christ would be lifted up, that Christ's power would be honored here, and that we would be changed as we see the grace that has come to us. Lord, may you help us to grow and abound in love for one another with knowledge and all discernment. May you do these things. Lord, your commands are so utterly impossible for us to do that we can't help but come to you in prayer and ask you to do it. So, Lord, would you do that this morning? I pray that if there are any here that do not know Christ, that they would see that there is nothing worth living for other than Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to tackle this with the common thread of three points and a poem. We'll have three points and a poem at the end. My three points will be firm, fighting, fearless. Firm, fighting, fearless. Did you see it? Stand firm, striving side by side, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Firm, fighting, fearless. All of this will be an explanation of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, it's also very important we understand that this passage does not drop on us in isolation from its surrounding context. Paul is going to give us two more chapters. Well, I guess how you count it, three, I'm sorry. Three more chapters of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. So he is now just hitting the tip of the iceberg. And the themes that are going to come out are Unity and endurance. Unity and endurance. So first, 
firm. Stand firm, verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm with one heart and one mind. I said a little bit earlier that all of that is a play on their idea of citizenship. Their idea of Roman citizenship that the Philippians prided themselves in. We are a citizen colony of Rome. And Paul is saying there is a much higher weight of responsibility and honor when you live worthy of the gospel. Citizens of heaven. This creates a kind of a problem for us if you just read it and it's without reading the rest of the book. The problem is what? Live worthy of the gospel so you would think then, well, I must be living a certain way. Maybe to go to heaven. And that's exactly the most common answer I hear when I ask people, what is the gospel? If you were to die and stand before Christ and say, why should I let you into heaven? Or on what basis do I know I am good with God? The most common answer I get is this. Well, I've for the most part, I've been a really good person. I've tried to do my best. I've tried to not steal. Okay, maybe I stole when I was little, but I haven't done that in a long time. I'm a pretty good person overall. Better than those people. I think God will let me in. That is the most common, common. And I want to attack that right up front. We don't ever live worthy of the gospel. We will never live a life good enough in our own strength and power to be worthy or earn heaven. Ever. I said during preschool Sunday that's good news and bad news. Good news for those who are, the bad news for those who are trying is you'll never make it. You'll never make it. All our works of righteousness will be like filthy rags to God. The good news is that nothing you ever do that is so wicked and awful will ever keep you from coming to Christ. If you come to Christ. You cannot be bad enough to lose heaven when you come to Christ. So I want to attack that. First, one pastor said, comes the gospel. Then comes the living worthy. First, you come to Christ. Then comes the living worthy of Christ. So you come to Christ and you believe all that he is. He came, he lived a perfect life, was crucified in the place of sinners, rose on the third day and says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And will you come to him like that? That's the gospel. And then comes the living worthy of it. The other thing that strikes me right here, right at the outset, is his emphasis on unity. Standing firm, so living worthy of the gospel, looks like standing firm with one spirit, one mind. Perhaps you could think of this idea to help get this. It's March, so I alluded to it earlier. What's going on right now? March Madness, Auntie Joyce, good job. March madness. Now think of this. Stand firm as an individual. 
No. March Madness is about teams coming together, playing together, following a coach for a common goal. It's about teams. And we are to stand firm together. It's striking. Paul just right at the outset. This you cannot do apart from the covenant commitment of fellow believers in Christ. We are never, never meant to take these commands and stand firm on our own. On our own. I don't need, I like, yes, Jesus, know the church. That concept's foreign to Scripture. It is through the church that the Spirit often works to help us stand firm. I am weak. My sin blinds me to my own needs. I need these men to help me and say, hey, Randy, you should think about this. And we need each other. Each and every one of us need each other to stand firm. When I was little, I used to go to the beach and I would, in Georgia, not here, in Georgia, I would go to the beach and I would stand and I would try and stand in one place about waist deep as the waves would come back and forth and hit me. And I would find that my feet would start to erode underneath the sand and I would start to push and I, I tried no matter how hard, no matter how much I sunk my feet in and dug into the ground, the waves eventually would push me over. I had to move. That's the picture I get when I try and stand firm without the body of Christ. No matter how hard you try in this life, temptation, trials will push you, will hit you, and it's only a matter of time before you stumble. It's only a matter of time before you stumble. So Paul says, stand firm, united. Stand firm, united. Take unity in the body deathly serious. Take unity in the body, deathly serious. When you feel that heart maybe of bitterness or of anger towards another brother and sister, don't say, ah, no, no, I'm not going to deal with that. I'll just see him next week and be happy. It is deathly serious when we say to another brother and sister, in word or deed, I'm okay not to pursue you. We paint a lie about the gospel and its power. So brothers and sisters, stand firm. What else does this mean? It means as we move towards meaningful membership, I preached on that at the beginning of the year, moving towards meaningful membership, it means we cannot be content to keep each other at arm's length. We cannot be content to play church. Come on Sunday mornings, hey, Uncle Lance, good to see you. Take it easy. I'll see you next week. Praise God, I'm praying for you. We have to say, Uncle Lance, come. Come, brother, I love you. Come to lunch with me. Come to dinner with me. Come hang out with me. But what's the fear? They might see that I'm actually a little weird. I'm actually a little weirder than it looks. They might see that I sing opera style to my son and think that's a little awkward. I sing songs that aren't even opera style. I just make them up as we go. They might see that my son's first idea of hula will be his, from his dad, and then he'll see the real thing one day and say, that's not it at all. <laughs> they might see that I'm a little weird, or he might see that I get a little irritated 
I'm a little impatient, that it might erode his view of me as a pastor. What will he think of me? So I'm going to be content to play church. Uncle Lance, good to see you, brother. I'll see you next week. We cannot be content to do that. That is not standing firm. That shows no power of the gospel. That shows no love that radically changes a life. We have to make that move towards one another. Lock arms, join arms, sometimes hold each other up when it gets messy. And stand firm, united. Second point, fighting it's firm fighting, 27B, with one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. You could say contending, you could say struggling. I think of the idea of struggling, this, this level of struggle. Is it the struggle that I get when I walk up a hill? I'm a little bit out of breath right immediately. No, it's more like the struggle you would think of in a UFC match, a cage match. If any of you have ever wrestled, it's that level of struggle. You're fighting, you're fighting, and at the end you're like, can't even talk because it's so difficult. That's the level of fighting that we are striving for, for the faith of the gospel. One theologian said the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. We strive together, together to see others know the gospel, to see others changed and affected with the gospel, and it gets bloody at times. It's hard work, as we're going to see in the next point with fearless. But we are striving together, we are wrestling, we're contending for the faith. And sometimes it'll feel like an all-out war from the outside, war from your struggles with sin on the inside, and you will be tired. You will be tired and you'll say, man, I just don't know if, I don't know if I can go another day like this. Some of you are utterly confused right now. Some of you are utterly, I, man, it's just going over my head. What he is saying, I just, this idea of fighting and this stuff like, I, I don't feel like I'm fighting. Am I fighting anybody? I don't, I don't, I don't feel angry. <laughs> it's just utterly confused with this idea. Let me just lovingly exhort you, challenge you, if you don't have a concept of this fight that I'm talking about, if you don't have any mental category for this fight, there's a very, very good possibility that you're not fighting. That you're not fighting. Because all who strive to advance the gospel will fight. And will know this struggle with our own sin. And I hope that'll be clear in the next few points as I give you scripture that shows that is the expected standard of the Christian life. It's fighting for the advancement of the gospel, not for anything else. We don't fight for the advancement of a political cause, although that is a fruit of the gospel. 
That is an action that God's people will take as they are called in different ways, but the primary thrust of the church is that people know Jesus. That people know Jesus, and that is how we create cultural change. We are fighting for the gospel. Keep this idea in mind. Think of the actual word here is the same word we get our English word, athlete. Striving. Striving. So if I say to live is Christ, to die is gain, or if we want to take this athletic metaphor, if I say for me to live is basketball, then you'll think, oh, he's not a very good uh, basketball player. He only plays like once a month, four times a month, five times a month. He practices on, you know, an hour at a time. How can he say to live is basketball? No, you would expect somebody, an athlete who makes their life about this, they'd be training Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the time. And when they come together with their team, they train more and they train more. And then when go time comes, game day, it's on. It's on. We are fighting together for the faith of the gospel. This is the very word, striving side by side. So as pastor, I don't stand over you in a sense, lording my authority over you. It's my desire to come alongside you in the trenches, walking with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And there will be times that you come and you walk along with me in my times of hardship. And Christ will be greatly magnified. Fighting. Fearless. Next Fearless, <clears throat> those firm, fighting, fearless, 28 through 30. And I'll tell you what, when we get to verse 29, I just totally do not have time to give that a worthy exposition of all that it entails. But I'll make a few comments on it, and we'll discuss it more Wednesday. And one day I'll preach on this idea of suffering and how that works out. But we'll, we'll just walk and take each in turn. Fearless. Standing firm with one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's worth asking, the gospel you preach and live, the gospel that you preach and live, is it a gospel that will make opponents? Is it a gospel, a message that will make opponents. I can't think of any message that says, when you come to Jesus, you get riches, that will make an opponent. Or, yes, you can have Jesus and everything else, one ocean, many rivers. That wouldn't make an opponent in today's society. When you say Christ alone, only Jesus that says that you are a sinner, that you must say that you are guilty before God and under his wrath and that by faith you will get grace and he will love you and he is kind and he saves your soul. Only that gospel makes opponents. It always has and it always will. So it's worth asking, does the gospel you preach and live make opponents? And if it doesn't, then it likely is not the biblical gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around offending people unnecessarily. 
There's a very famous pastor that died this week that we ought not to rejoice in his death, but he offended many by picketing at funerals. We do not go around unnecessarily offending people with our words. Truth itself, the gospel itself, is offensive. The way I speak it should not be offensive. I should take pains to make it as loving and as gentle and show all the grace that's there, even though the message itself is offensive. So we don't go around unnecessarily offending people or speaking to them extremely harshly. So, does the gospel we preach make opponents? That's just one side question. Now what's he saying? Don't be frightened by them. The opponents that come, do not be frightened by them. The Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Or the words of Jesus. We just covered this in John in Sunday school. John 14, Jesus is about to go away and he says to his very fearful disciples, let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Believed in God, believe also in me. Or, I love this passage in Luke 21. Some of you, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head, not a hair on your head will perish. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. To die is gain by your endurance in death. You will gain your lives. Man, that just, what a beautiful comfort that is. Some of you they will put to death, but not a single hair of your head will perish. How does that work? 30 Christians in North Korea executed last week. 30 of them executed for the gospel. The headlines were there. Oh, that we Christians would see those headlines and say, no, they're getting executed. We reinterpret and say 30 Christians going home. 30 Christians magnifying death. 30 Christians gain. Gain. Or 30 Christians put to death, not a hair of their head perished. Not a hair from their head perished. Man. Fearless. The worst they can do is kill you. That's all they can do. The worst they can do is kill you. And for the Christian, that just is like sitting a ship, a cruise ship, off to sea. It's the worst they can do. Christ disarmed death. It's no fear anymore to me. It's the worst they can do. Dying indeed can be difficult for Christ. That level of physical persecution, no doubt about it, is difficult and can strike fear in any of us. And indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a day many years from now, maybe not as many as I think, that we are suffering a physical persecution here. Dying can be difficult, 
But sometimes living for Christ can be just as difficult. Living and suffering persecution can be just as difficult. One pastor said this, sometimes a name stings more than the whip. Sometimes a name stings more than the whip. He argued, when you get the whip, as Paul got, or as many of the disciples got, it can feel heroic. Yes, I'm, I'm suffering for Christ. Never beautiful, but it could feel heroic. But think of a name, a name of disdain that communicates shame. Everywhere you go, people look at you with, with utter disdain and contempt. Has that ever happened before? If you call yourself a Christian, that was the first name that was given as a sign of that scorn. Acts 11, and in Antioch they were first called Christians. Peter would later say, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that name. We will get names also. I will get names also as we preach and strive together for the advancement of the gospel. What are some of those names? Intolerant, bigot, arrogant, narrow-minded, hate-monger, chauvinist, homophobe, zealot. Those are all names that we can expect to hear and be labeled with. When we preach the biblical gospel, they're names that are already being labeled to those who will speak out. Sometimes the name can sting more than the whip. And what Paul says is, don't be afraid of these things. This, these things, this, when you stand firm, when we're striving and we're united and fearless, all of these together are a sign of their destruction, a sign that the gospel is true and powerful and able to save. And you do not need to be afraid of them. Actually, it is they that needs to be afraid of you. Because it is also a sign that their judgment is coming. If the gospel is the power of God to save, then the gospel is also the promise that judgment will come for all who reject it. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, it's easy to think of those full frontal attacks, the full court press, if you will, from the outside, those who are waging war against us and we are striving together but often that's not always the only strategy employed there's a national crisis happening international crisis happening many of you are reading it in the papers russia just annexed a whole nother country to them tensions are rising can create much fear, especially for the missionaries who are working in and around those areas of Ukraine. But Russia has a tactic. It's said that they have operatives that they send in in advance of their artillery and military units. And these people are, in essence, we would think of them like spies. They go in and they... they before any shot is ever fired, they've already turned the hearts of the people to the will of the Russians. And they go in and they 
do propaganda and they get people all riled up and so when elections come everybody's saying yes and we see this exact tactic used in the crucifixion of Christ one week everybody's hailing him Palm Sunday Hosanna Hosanna in the highest the next week false witnesses arise Jesus is on trial all of a sudden in the crowd crucify him another crucify him another crucify him and before long, the whole crowd in unison screams, crucify him, crucify him. It's a very real and powerful method. So brothers and sisters, we also must likewise not only look out for the full frontal attacks, but going back to the unity, standing firm together, look out for the attacks that will arise from within that will arise from within, that will attempt to separate, cut off. When we're fighting together, they will attempt to sector, sector us apart, divide and conquer. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, from among your own selves will arise men teaching twisted things. So be vigilant, be vigilant, and in all these things, do not be fearful because it is a sign of their destruction and of your salvation. And then he gives a great explanation for all of this. What do you mean? So, so not only am I going to suffer, Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be persecuted. So not only are you going to suffer and you have to fight and stand firm, and be fearless because of what Christ is doing in you. Now Paul gives us an explanation for, verse 29, for it has been granted, that same word is a word we get grace, for it has been graciously granted to you for the sake of Christ. Now catch this, what's been granted? What's been granted? Verse 29, for it has been graciously granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, so your belief was granted to you, that you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer. Suffer for his namesake. It has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his namesake. And that is Paul's explanation as to why we should not be afraid. Don't be afraid of your opponents and of the suffering because God has granted that to you for the sake of Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, think, put a star around that passage as your homework this week. Take that home and let, you, let your mind wrestle with these concepts for it has been granted to believe and suffer. And don't say, no, my mind, I can't understand that. I, I, I just, I can't accept that God would grant my suffering, whatever, whatever your current suffering you're walking through for the advancement of the gospel as a Christian, and you say, God granted that? Yes, and he intends to make you more like Christ. 
He intends to make you more beautiful as you are conformed to the image of his son. And he does it lovingly because he promised you that he saved you from your sin and he will not leave you in your sin. So he often uses suffering to change you and make you more like Jesus. I said earlier, I don't have time to talk through all the implications of that. We will get into it more as we get into chapter 2. But it gets at the same idea, brothers and sisters, we cannot do anything in this Christian life without God, without his power enabling us, without his will moving us graciously and lovingly. So I'm going to ask you to wrestle with that. And then I want to ask you to join our arms, hand in hand, stand firm, strive together, and move with me and each other for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm, be fighting, and fearless. It's the three points, and where's the poem? I'll read it, and then I'm going to invite you. If you are struggling with something, I know many of you in here are. I love you. I already pray for you. I'll pray for you when I see you in the office, whenever, anytime. But if you would like special prayer, I will be out this door to my right and your left. We're going to sing a song of response. I'm going to ask you to come forward if you desire, and I will pray with you and for you as a means of striving by your side. I invite you to come in that time. Here's the poem. It's very brief. Faith and suffering, each a grace. Both a gift to be embraced. How this makes sense, he does explain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have promised to walk through us, through trials with us in pain. That you led the way you went before us. And you beckon us to come after you and to be with us the whole way. Lord, may we trust you. May we trust you for your grace. May we trust you for the strength to stand firm. Lord, may we link arms with other believers and see that our passion in in our life is for the gospel to go forth, that our passion in our marriage is to present our brides as pure and spotless, that our passion with our children is to bring them up to know Christ. Lord, give us the strength to live worthy of the gospel and that in all these things you would be magnified and we would be satisfied. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.